0: We're hopefully gonna be finishing up John chapter 11 today, that, that's my goal at least. Um, uh, John chapter 11, as m- many of you know, covers the resurrection of Lazarus. It's, thematically, it's very similar to the previous sign that we saw in the Gospel of John, which is uh, restoring sight to a man that was born blind. Um, and this sign's gonna be a little bit different than the other signs in the Gospel of John. Normally, when there's a sign, then um, what follows kind of considers the significance of the sign. And in this, the significance is considered first, and then the sign comes at the end, and it, it feels kind of anticlimactic, and it, it's intended to by John. You can actually see, and we looked at this last time, you know, a, a structure that he's built the chapter around that focuses it on Jesus' statement to Martha. Is it Martha? Um, yes, to Martha, you know, that I am the bread of life or sorry, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, And so we we looked at that statement last time. We're going to move on to Jesus interacting with Mary, who who he interacts with next, and then we'll kind of continue to the the sign itself. So starting in verse 28. Mm -hmm. When she had said this, she went to her sister uh, Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, She rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Oops. I'm sorry. Um, When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come to her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So we're going to start at verse 32, Uh, in this, um, the kind of response of uh, Mary to to Jesus, and we're going to look at just kind of the similarities. Uh, Mary opens with the same statement. Uh, I'm not sure if it's exactly a a question. Grammatically, it isn't one technically, but it it may well be kind of intended as a question, like, why weren't you here? Um, And, you know, I, I think that we, we certainly see some partial faith. They, they believe that Jesus could have helped the situation up to a point, but they don't see Jesus as able to help the situation at, at, the, at this point. Um, they, they see you know, Jesus is able to deal with an illness, perhaps, but not death, at least not death that has lasted for four days. Um, but instead of further discussion with Jesus, like we had in the case of Martha, you know, Mary simply falls at Jesus' feet. And I think we, we see, see some trust on Mary's part there. Um, I, I, I think we, we may even see kind of an element of worship, although it, it's a little bit hard to say. Mary you know, didn't understand why Jesus didn't respond to her request in the way that she expected, but she still remained worshipful. Um, at least that, that's how I see it. But it, it is ambiguous enough, it's kind of hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we could also just kind of look at Mary's interaction and you know, whether that response is appropriate and I think it is to a, a pretty good degree it um the her, her faith may not be what it should be but I don't think any of us have the faith that we we, we should have um and, and Jesus never criticizes her faith in this chapter he instead builds it um she's grieving. She doesn't understand why Jesus didn't intervene in the way that she hoped and probably expected, but she's taking all of that to the right place. She's taking it to the feet of Jesus. And so if we look at Jesus' response, he's not angry with her, uh, probably. At least that's how I read it. Uh, As I understand that the Greek is ambiguous, it could be that Jesus is kind of frustrated with the general lack of faith, but I I think there's a better way to see Jesus' response that we'll we'll deal with. Um, But you certainly there are, are good commentators that would uh, take a different path and maybe see Jesus as being angry with her, her lack of faith in, in the text. Um, so the, let's take a look at Jesus' response to the, the mourners and the, the weeping. The, the phrase that we've got in the ESV, it's probably a, an okay way of attempting to render this in the English, but it really doesn't do justice to the Greek. Uh, it's hard to translate. Uh, Apparently, the word comes uh, from uh, a Greek word that often would refer to the snort of a horse as it's getting ready for a race or as it's getting ready to rush into battle. Um, It it can mean different things. It can denote outrage, fury, and anger, but it's it's a fairly strong word, and it's an unusual one. Um, And so I I think... deeply moved in spirit doesn't quite do this justice. There's also anger uh, in this. Where, where's that anger directed? Um, I don't think it's directed at Mary, although there are some that would uh, see it differently. So um, the, one of the possibilities I, that I've alluded to is that Jesus might be kind of upset at this widespread disbelief. I, I don't think that's the case because, you know, we, we don't see him upset at you know, the inadequate belief that we see in Mary and Martha, um, Why would he be angry over mourning and those who presumably didn't know him uh, all that well, the the, uh, Jews that had come there? Um, It doesn't quite fit, I don't think. I I think the second possibility is that Jesus is angry at death itself and the pain that death causes. Um, Jesus, in fact, is about to do battle with death. With respect to Lazarus, it's not going to be particularly uh, strenuous fight on Jesus' part. He's simply going to go and state that Lazarus is to arise, and Lazarus will will arise. But um, this is taking place less than two miles from Jerusalem, um, and, you know, this is also taking place probably weeks before Jesus' crucifixion, and I think it, it, this is kind of looking ahead to Jesus' larger battle with death that's coming up. You know, Jesus is about to go to the cross. You know, he's not going to just secure a few more decades of life for a your one individual person. He's going to secure eternal life for those uh, that God has given to him. You know, the crowd sees some, someone, presumably someone that's loved in the community that's gone, they're mourning. Uh, that, that's, that's appropriate. Um, Jesus is seeing that, but I think he's also able to see the, the larger plight of all of his people who are under this sentence of eternal death that's justly deserved for their sins. And I think like a horse preparing to charge into battle, jesus is preparing to win the greatest victory that he will ever uh that it has been won or will ever be won in order to defeat death uh john of course he's writing about a real event here but he's also i think recognizing that this event is a picture of about what's about to happen in jerusalem you know, in the coming weeks and in fact you know, the book is shifting gears to deal with that the um the resurrection of Lazarus is going to introduce kind of the, the decisive uh, element that's going to uh, set the religious leaders firmly on a path to kill Jesus. Um, and the, the narrative is going to shift into, in, into that as soon as this finishes. Um, we're not gonna get that far in, into John until, the, until we pick it up again, but um, that's kind of where we're headed in the gospel. Verse 35, of course, is deservedly well-known in large part because it's one of the favorite verses for memorization in in Sunday school programs, Uh, but there there is a lot of significance to that, and I think there's a lot we can take away from that. I'm not going to get into this as much as I would like because I want to get to some stuff at the end of this chapter, Um, but we can see a lot of things. Jesus uh, is fully human. He's also fully God. Uh, it's easy to overstress one nature at the expense of the other. We, we don't say that Jesus is 50% human and 50% God. We say that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. Um, you know, he's nothing less than fully human. Um, you know, he, he feels uh, the same things that any human being feels, and he's capable of you know, mourning you know, just as deeply as any uh, other human being. We can see that we're genuinely precious to God, uh, this is a a point that uh, uh, James Boyce's sermon did a really good job of uh, dealing with, and I'm going try to kind of try trying to summarize. But you know, we we don't get particularly upset or or weep over you know, a dented fender or spilled milk or, or you know, something insignificant, but Jesus does weep over the pain that he sees in those that are around him, and this is actually very alien to the Greek thinking in in the day, and it's alien to a lot of uh, religious and philosophical thinking that you'll, you'll see today. Um, in, in Greek thinking, you know, if God were all powerful, he wouldn't be hurt by anything and wouldn't be capable of feeling um, pain. Um, the, and the, the result of, of that would be a, a view of God as being emotionless. But you know, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament feels deeply for his people. And this is an aspect of God's character that is very clearly taught in scripture and it must be upheld equally with God's immutability, although these, these two qualities are in tension. Jesus has a more a clear, uh, eternal perspective on Lazarus' death than the, the others. He, he knew that you know, as a believer, you know, death is not something to fear, but it's something that we should anticipate if, if we understand what, what transpires. You know, he knew also that he was gonna raise Lazarus back to life. You know, he knew that God would be glorified in the faith of his people, uh, or, and, sorry, and, and the faith of God's people would be strengthened in this event. So Jesus could kind of uniquely see all of the good that was going to come from this situation, but he still felt that same grief over death, and he, I think he genuinely shared the pain over the loss of Lazarus, and I think this tells us that sorrow is in, in situations like this is okay, it, it, um, even if we have you, you know, the, the perspective that you know, those who have passed on are in a better place. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and move on to the, the next section, so starting in verse 38. Then Jesus, uh, deeply moved again, and this is kind of that same Greek word for, uh, that, that was, uh, we've already talked about. Then De- Jesus, deeply moved, moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lazarus come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound up with bound up with linen stripes uh, strips, sorry. And his face face covered with a cloth. Jesus said to them, "Unbind him and let him go." I think one of the things that is important to do as you're reading scripture, you know, we we have all these details so that we can kind of put ourselves you know, into these situations and 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 try to picture them, and I I think it's profitable just to think what what are Mary and Martha going through at at this point? And I I would think the best answer is probably confused. You kind of see that in um, it, it's a uh, Martha's response, I believe. Um, yeah, in, in Martha's response about you know, not wanting to remove the the stone because of the odor, but you. Know, why is it that Jesus' actions don't make sense would probably be a question that they'd be asking themselves. If, if he really loves us, why isn't he doing something? You know, uh, you know this is often you know, how we find ourselves feeling when, you know, situations come up that we you know, think that God should uh, address in some way and we don't get clear direction from God. God doesn't do what we expect and what we hope to, he should do. Um, and I think Mary and Martha are very much, you know, kind of in that situation here. But if we look over this episode as a whole, you know, we we can see you know, this event as a source of comfort during times of difficulty that, that we'll come to. Um, Jesus' response to the prayer, he, that it was a message that they sent to him when he was in another city, but, you know, they're sending a message to, to Jesus, that that's very much a prayer. Um, that. You know his initial response of not coming right away didn't make sense at the time. You know they uh, didn't have to wait. Um, They let's see. They uh, would eventually see Lazarus raised, and perhaps they'd, they'd see some of the the purpose behind why Jesus acted the way that they did in this situation. But that's not something that we always see. But we can see that Jesus is always acting out of deep love for his people, and that's something that the text specifically states that we looked at last time. Nothing can stand in the way of God's love, not imperfect belief, not a repressive government or deep sadness or, or death. God is above all the, of those things. Uh, they didn't see that. They didn't expect that Jesus was going to respond in the way that he did. He um, in this situation, but there isn't a situation that Jesus is not in complete control over, and that should uh, be a, a source of comfort. Trials and hardships more fully reveal God's glory, and they deepen our trust in God, and they lead us to a more intense relationship with Him. And we, we see that stated very clearly here, but it, it, it's true in other situations as well. Um, Martha's statement you know, about the you know, not wanting to row roll away the stone because of the odor is an interesting one. It, uh, it, it does seem to be you know, a lack of faith to, to at least some extent on her part, but she does it. She recognizes uh, that God will do whatever Jesus requests earlier, and it may well be that it's just more of a, a lack of imagination than a lack of faith. But I, I think Jesus' response is you know, the more important thing. You know, he reassures her. And then he uh, proceeds to actually raise raise Lazarus. So what what can we take from this resurrection? One of the things that we see is that the quality of our faith is less important than the object of our faith. Imperfect faith in Jesus is better than perfect faith in anything less than Jesus. And despite Martha's reservations about removing the stone, she did trust Jesus even though she couldn't see a reason to remove the stone, other than the fact that Jesus had told her to do that. Um, what verse forty literally states is significant. Let me put verse forty back up. Um, yeah, uh, well, you can see it there. Um, it doesn't say that if they have enough faith, Jesus will raise Lazarus. Uh, it it says that if they believe, they will see the glory of God in the resurrection of Lazarus. That. Uh, belief in Jesus might not be perfect. W- in fact, we, we see that Mary and Martha's faith is imperfect, and so, uh, but it, it's strengthened by this. Um, we also are going to see that the religious leaders have the same information that Mary and Martha. They might not be there to physically witness the event, but they don't question that it took place this time. They they did question that the blind man was raised. They're not going to question whether Lazarus was in, was legitimately raised. But their unbelief is going to be strengthened by that. Um, There's uh, another thing that's kind of worth pointing out. In uh, 1140, Jesus is saying, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? This is the the last of the the seven signs in the Gospel of John. The first one also kind of refers to that. I don't think that's a a coincidence. John is a very careful in the way that he structured his gospel. Uh, this, the first of his signs, this is in 2.11 after the um, turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did it in uh, Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. But there's a, a difference. You know, both of these are talking about glory, but one of them is talking about Jesus' glory in 2.11 and one of them is talking about God's glory in uh, the, the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. Um, and I think the point that John isn't in being entirely subtle about is that Jesus' glory and God's glory are, are one and the same thing. Now, I brought this up in small group, and Dave McGuire pointed out that in 11.4, um, we, we see this actually even more clearly. Um, Jesus is saying that what he's about to do at the beginning of this chapter is that this is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Uh, And so that verse actually brings those two together very nicely. And uh, Dave brought that up in small group and insisted that I credit him if I ever used it again. And I did. (laughs) (laughs) I I have notes saying that uh, I I was instructed to make sure I credit you. This was several years ago. (laughs) Um, If we had been eyewitnesses to this event and we were kind of writing it down, we would probably, and if we were writing it down not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, we probably would write a, a rather different account than John has given us. There's a lot of stuff that I would have wanted to see included that's not included here. Jesus raises Lazarus, and it ends. There, there's uh, very little uh, that that said beyond that. What did Lazarus experience? You know, did 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 he go to heaven? What did he see? Um, was he restored in perfect health? Or you know that pain in his left knee that came up every so often was that still there? I don't know. How long did he live after this? What age was Lazarus? Uh, and those, those details simply are, are not there, and a lot of other details that we would have expected and we would have wanted to include aren't there, and that's certainly intentional on John's part. The, the narrative ends very abruptly, and I, I'm quite convinced that it's because John wants us to focus this narrative on, on Jesus. We would certainly be fascinated by what Lazarus experienced or what the um, or how the crowds responded, which it also isn't really uh d- dealt with, or uh, it, any number of other questions, but these aren't as important as what John is dealing with in the chapter it, this is uh considered by many to kind of be the the central chapter of the gospel, what the gospel has kind of led up to under, uh, to to this point where it states that, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life john 's focus uh in this chapter is is on that statement and you know, the resurrection of Lazarus is simply a sign that points to that greater reality. Now, it, it's hard not to notice some similarities between you, this account of Lazarus being raised and Jesus' resurrection. You know, we've got a a cave, and there's a large stone. The both uh, sec- sections deal with the linens that the body was wrapped in. Um, but there are some differences. You know, Jesus didn't need help in removing the, the linens and the stone. Lazarus did. Um, you know, Lazarus you know, required some people to physically roll the stone away. That wasn't necessary in the case of Jesus' resurrection. Um, and you know, the biggest difference, of course, is that Lazarus was raised with a mortal body, and he eventually died again. Jesus was raised with a body that uh, is appropriate for the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, elsewhere, it talks about Jesus being the firstborn of the, of the dead. One of the big ideas in this chapter is that the resurrection of Lazarus is is a picture of the new birth. And there's a lot of ways that we we can kind of see this picture expressed. And I'm not necessarily going to be able to hit all of them, but let me kind of get some of the important ones. We've mentioned that we're not told how long Lazarus lived after Jesus raised him. And that may well be intentional. Um, Lazarus was... Likely dead by the time that uh, that John wrote this, this was probably written r- roughly fifty or more years after these events take took place, and so John could have included that detail um, but it wouldn't fit into the picture of the eternal life that Jesus is giving to to his people, and so simply by leaving it out um, the the picture becomes a little bit clearer where it would would not have been otherwise uh, another You know, important thing about this is that, and we've 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 heard this one, is that the new birth begins with God's sovereign call. That's an important part of this picture. Anyone who's looked at the doctrines of grace has often heard this account used to to support the sovereignty of God in raising those that are completely dead and unresponsive to new life. Um, There's a, a lot of detail about the grave clothes and. The need for those to be removed, and how they kind of make him stumble as he he comes out of the grave. Now, at one level, this is the sort of detail that an eyewitness would remember, and you know, it kind of helps us to have a picture of, of what happened. But it, it's it's certainly at least tempting to see that you know, a, a picture of the um, you know, of the new birth, where we're, we're raised to new life, but we still have kind of the grave clothes of, of the the old life on us that we need to to remove is uh, we undergo sanctification. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think, it, I think that picture may well be there and it, it would certainly explain the emphasis on that. If we uh, kind of think ahead to the next chapter, you know, in uh, nine through 11, we're told that you know, many believed in Jesus on account of Lazarus. You know, he had been made alive just like Jesus makes us alive. The authorities couldn't deny this. And so their only recourse is to kill Lazarus. In the same way, Jesus has made us alive. And it, it's a fact that anyone who opposes you know, the message of Jesus can't deny. Um, in, in the same way that they were unable to not deny that Jesus had, had raised Lazarus. And so you know, just like Lazarus is persecuted because Jesus had, had raised him to life, just, they, they plotted to kill him, The same happens to those that Jesus has raised to life. They're uh, persecuted as well because of the life that God has given them. John's Gospel treats Lazarus' death as the catalyst that pushed the religious leaders over the edge in their determination to kill Jesus. In other words, um, giving life to Lazarus required that Jesus die. And this might explain uh, why we have so much of the detail reminding us of Jesus' resurrection. You know, specifically, both are you know, uh, buried in, in tombs and uh, the, the, the rock and the, the linens that we've looked at. It's, um, I think that, that connection is, is certainly there. Another thing that is interesting to ask is that weeks later in the upper room, John, Jesus is going to say something remarkable. So this is in John 14, verse 12. Um, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And Jesus is going to say this weeks after raising Lazarus. Um, How is it that Jesus is going to promise that we're going to do greater works than that? We don't have uh, any signs in Acts that most of us would consider to be as... uh, great a, a sign as this particular sign, and so how is it that Jesus could promise that we would do greater works than that? And I think that the, the answer is that if we recall that in John's gospel, you know, Jesus' miracles are signs. They, they are real miracles, but you know, their, their supernatural character is always secondary to the point um, that they're making in, in terms of spiritual reality. The resurrection of Jesus is dramatic proof that Jesus has the ability uh, to physically raise the dead, but it points to something greater. It points to his ability to spiritually raise the dead. Considering that a physical resurrection could be accomplished relatively quickly by Jesus with just a few words, but our spiritual resurrection required Jesus' life of active obedience, and it required his substitutionary, substitutionary death in our place, the new birth is a far greater work, even though... From our perspective, it might not seem as impressive, but in reality, as as seen by God, it's a far greater work, and we're given the privilege of being a part of this through our witness to Jesus Christ. I'm going to move on to verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children <clears throat> excuse me the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. <clears throat> Why are the religious leaders concerned about le- losing their place and their nation due to Jesus? The first thing that I think is just worth—oops—is uh, worth mentioning is that all the commentaries that I looked at suggested that place probably refers to the temple. So that might just help us to to see what they're saying. Those in religious power in that day were in power because they collaborated to some extent with the Romans. If you had someone that didn't want to cl- collaborate with the Romans. They probably wouldn't have lived very long, and if they did, they wouldn't have, you know, had uh, a significant amount of power. The Romans would have put into power people that would kind of maintain the order. The Romans weren't particularly concerned with religious practice. They simply wanted peace and order, and they wanted the tribute to kind of keep flowing to Rome. They, they were happy to let the Jews practice their religion with relative freedom. Um, they were, you know, a lot more reasonable than a lot of the, the previous empires that uh, that had existed in that that sense. Um, but, you know, the, the Romans very much I- expected peace, and, you know, any individual claiming to be the Messiah, you know, raising small armies, trying to drive out the Romans, um, would have disrupted that peace, and that actually happened regularly. We have lots of, you know, extra-biblical re- records of that sort of thing, and so the Romans were very Careful in, in trying to make sure that nothing would get started. Um, so that, that's kind of the context for, for the concern. Now, we, we see in the other Gospels, and we also see later in John, that Jesus was consistently uninterested in either raising an army or in criticizing Rome. And we will later see that Pilate and you know, the, the Roman officials don't see him as a, a threat. So I think that this fear is very much overstated. I think that what's going on is that the religious leaders are simply jealous of Jesus. He's gaining favor with the crowds. He doesn't follow their strict interpretation of the law or uh, work in the way that they work at religion. And I I think that they're frustrated at losing respect and popularity to someone that's not one of them. Um, I think they also know that they don't have a valid reason to to kill him, and so they're using this non-existent threat of Jesus to the nation as an excuse to do what they actually want to do for selfish reasons in in the first place. And you know, th- there's certainly an irony to th- to this. Um, the they have two concerns. First, they're concerned that more people would believe in Jesus. Uh, killing him didn't work, <laughs> uh, as the history of Christianity attests. Secondly. Um, they're concerned with Jesus' popularity that would endanger the status quo, uh, especially with respect to the, you know, the nation and the function of the temple. Uh, and uh, as you know, Jerusalem was completely destroyed less than four decades later. Uh, this is probably ultimately a, a, a judgment of God for, what, uh, for the rejection of Jesus. Uh, so it, the, the, the two things that they were, are afraid of they both made worse by by what they did. Uh, It's not a rational decision, but no one who hates God is thinking rationally. Even um, Even more fundamentally, Jesus threatened that this pious facade that they worked so hard to construct, they were able to appear quite righteous, but Jesus actually was perfectly righteous, and that difference, I think, is very stark and, and noticeable. And they, they hated Jesus for being the light that, that revealed that uh, condition in them. If we think back to the man born blind, um, we, we see a, a, an interesting difference. There, they, they kind of head in and they investigate, they talk to different witnesses, and they, they expect to show that the miracle didn't actually happen. Um, this time, they don't even bother they 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 know that this miracle has taken place but uh, um they, they don't try to discredit it they, they simply try to get people to ignore it and they they think that perhaps by killing Lazarus that that might um you know somehow help that now i think it, it's fairly obvious how Caius's statement is, is a a prophecy you know he means it in in one way, he's arguing in a very wicked way that if they were to unjustly kill Jesus, that's kind of better for the nation as a whole than risking destruction by the Romans. Uh, it's a very pragmatic way of thinking, and it's kind of ironic that the high priest would uh, think that way and not be looking, even in the, in the slightest, to God in how to justly guide God's people in this particular situation. Um, but I, I think the real irony, of course, is that God intends for Jesus to die for his people, just not in the way that Caius pictures it. Um, and there's a lot that we can see here. We, we certainly see either, um, something, at least, of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, Caiaphas isn't being forced or coerced into his selfish and sinful hatred of Jesus. He is quite willingly choosing the role that he's going to play in this narrative. There's not even the slightest hint of any coercion. Um, Caiaphas is doing what he wants to do, and Caiaphas is intending that for evil, but God is intending the same for good. Caiaphas's statement, you know, illustrates this uh, quite nicely. His, um, his, his thinking is completely devoid of faith. It, it's selfish. It's Machiavellian. It, it's evil, and yet God is taking, you know, this you know, completely um you know, free choice that Caiaphas is making to to think and proceed this way uh and he's making it prophetic for the good that he intends to do to redeem his people um, there's another interesting connection to chapter ten the in in chapter ten. At, at the beginning of this, the Jews gathered around Jesus and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus doesn't tell them plainly, but I think he's just shown them plainly by, by raising Lazarus. His, uh, his, powerful, his power is undeniable at the end of this. Um, you know, raising a man dead four days from the tomb, someone that's widely known, because we've got you know, mourners that have come all the way from Jerusalem uh, for this is uh, a, a far more powerful statement than any words that Jesus could have uttered. Um, but we, we, see, we see that the response to Jesus' plain answer uh, is revealed here. And the response to that answer is that they intend to kill him. Okay. Um, let's stay here. If we look back over the last verses of chapter 10, uh, specifically uh, 10, verse 42, and many believed in him there, we might recall that uh, we'd, we'd seen apparent belief very frequently in John. There's lots of you, kind of similar statements to ten forty-two that had, had come before, but then Jesus is going to examine that belief, and it's usually shown to be inadequate. Um, and there's usually, Jesus will kind of point that out, the exchange is going to get harsher and harsher, and it usually leads to this same group that had stated that they believed in Jesus, either leaving him or picking up stones to kill him. Um, In 1042, we don't have a follow-up on that. We have a a similar statement that there's some sort of belief, but then we don't have that follow-up, and I I think we actually do. I, I think that chapter 11 is the follow-up. There's belief in Jesus, and Jesus responds by giving new life. Um, I think John is actually connecting the, the two chapters um, to, to show that Jesus' response to those who believe in him is to give them uh, th- those who believe in him life. The, the last thing that I want to do as we close out John is I want to go back to the prologue. The first five verses of the prologue are uh, uh, quite well known. Many of you have have memorized those. But those first five verses, in fact, I think very nicely summarize the main point of John's gospel. One commentator uh, titled the the section on those first five verses as the revelation in a nutshell. Um, So the the rest of the gospel is kind of unpacking what those first five verses mean. And so I want to come back to four and five, and kind of look at the connections that we might see. Uh, Verse four and five are, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, As is typical with John, these verses themselves use very simple language, very simple construction, but they are also at the same time so profound that there's uh, a lot about them that I didn't see when we went through uh, the prologue several years ago at this point. And I'm sure there's a lot that I don't see in them now that, that's there uh, that could be, you know, I think, profitably uh, brought from these verses. But one thing that I, I do see, there's uh, two themes that have, have indeed been very important to John's Gospel. Light and life. Light in John's Gospel refers to the revelation and the salvation that Jesus is, and that Jesus offers. And that uh, that I'm using a, a definition from what Rodney Whitaker's commentary there. Life is not just existence in John's Gospel, um, and it's not just eternal existence. It includes that, but it, it, it's something far more. The life that Jesus offered is indeed eternal, but that's not the main quality. Life is living as God intended us to live, in His presence, delighting in Him, perfectly satisfied and overfilling with joy, uh, or overflowing with joy. So if you no- notice how closely John connects these two ideas in uh, 1 verse 4, the life, and this is capital L life that I'm talking about, and that John is talking about there, that we, we should desperately want is only found in Jesus. And the life that we should want is the light that we need to to find salvation and correct knowledge of uh, God. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that these final two signs that are um, that kind of close out this first half of John's gospel. The, 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 those signs are the healing of the man born blind and uh, restoring Lazarus to life. Provide such a compelling coincidence, or it's not a coincidence that those. are are what John kind of closes the gospel out with, and and they're about light and life. The life that Jesus offers isn't some future reality. It's something that we have now, although maybe imperfectly. We see Jesus now as as the source of life. We see him as our only hope of salvation. We want to know more about him. We want to, we we know, know Jesus to be God incarnate. We know that he lived the life that we should have lived, and we know that he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. We delight somewhat in, in worshiping him. You know, just like the man that was born blind, Jesus has re- been revealed to us, and our response is to follow his feet and worship. Now, I'm not saying that we do any of those things particularly well or as well as we should. You know, we, we don't spend as much time in the word of God as we would if we understood what a, a treasure is there. Um, but we do at least have a foretaste of what it is to know Him and, and to worship Him. So we have life now in us. And you know, the more that we know Jesus and the more that we delight in Him, the more life we will have. That life that Jesus gives us in these signs is the light by which others come to know Him as Savior. That light is the life of, or that life is the light of men. Finally, we see in these verses um, the the light shining in the darkness. The man born blind and Lazarus have seen the light of Jesus and have been given new life. The world can see that, and has no way to, to explain away the miracle of the light and the life that Jesus provides. Their response is to persecute it. The man born blind is excommunicated from the synagogue. The plot to kill Lazarus because of, of, of the light that Jesus' power uh, uh, it, it is visible to all. People can kind of see Jesus' power in the fact that Lazarus is alive when he was dead. And it's a threat to those that hate that light. Um, in uh, John 1, verse 5, that last word, overcome, is another of these ambiguous words. It has uh, several meanings. There's three meanings that are are distinct from each other and they all work about equally well. Commentators are kind of split about which of the three words is the best way to translate it. Um, It it, it might mean overcome. Uh, That's the way that the ESV uh, chose to translate it. Other translations go with understand um, comprehend. And the, the final possible meaning is extinguish, uh, as in kind of put out a fire. Um, and you could see how all three of those work about equally well there. And I, I, I'm of the opinion that John recognized that and saw that this word just had three different meanings that all work, and uh, I think intended all three of those meanings. You know, all, all, all of those meanings are there. They, they work. But, you know, the, the light of Jesus is visible to uh, this world, and that is undeniable. Uh, the darkness doesn't understand it. The darkness will not prevail against it, and the darkness will not extinguish it, and so I think that brings us to the end of where I'm going to leave off uh, for this first half of the Gospel of John. I very much look forward to, you know, continuing this, but it's going to be a bit of time before that happens, probably a year or two. Um, dear Heavenly Father, I just Thank you for this beautiful picture of uh, you and the salvation that you provide that we've seen parts of in this gospel. I just pray that all of us would come away from looking at, at this gospel with a deeper appreciation from you and a desire to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen.